Shakoach for everyone who's joining the Shear and um, showing honor to someone that we all felt so deeply inspired by and, and had the mischus uh, to, to have in our lives. Um, I wanted to discuss the Midah of Bitachon, primarily from the article um, in By His Light. It was actually a um, lecture delivered in the wake of the Yom Kippur War. In 1975, it was um, distilled or reorganized by Ronnie Ziegler, by Ronnie Ziegler in the Sefer. And I'm sure many people are familiar with it, those who are, and it's worthwhile to have some exposure to it. And in particular, I want to highlight a couple parts of Rev. Lichtenstein that aren't apparent, especially to those that didn't spend time with him as Talmidim in the yeshiva, in Yeshiva University, in the Grish Yeshiva. People know him for his lectures, for his shiurim, a titanic Talmud Chacham. But a couple aspects I wanted to try to highlight through the shear, through summarizing the shear, articulating, adding, of course, my own insights. Number one, he, he had tremendous EQ, tremendous emotional intelligence. He understood the internal emotional world of a human being, our interactions with other people, our relationships, of course, the emotional landscape of our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And he was able to help um, analyze, landscape that world, teach us how to deepen that world, how to become more deeply passionate in our relationship and our religion. A lot of people who don't, didn't have that exposure would think that he was very dispassionate and very theoretical and analytical and everything was an idea. But he really taught us about the inner life of a human being, how we relate to other people, and of course, how we can channel all those emotions that Kodesh Baruch was. He wasn't emotionally expressive in that sense, at least not to the Talmudim in an immediate sense, but he had a very, very deep sense and understanding of the emotional inner world. The second issue I wanted to discuss, and this hopefully will be apparent by the Shear, and I spoke about this in my Divrei Hespade, which is available. Maybe if you it, you can put it on the chat. I, I put a YouTube uh, video out, so or an audio. You can take it from my Facebook page, my Twitter feed. Rav Lichtenstein was very, very panoramic. He never discussed the particular point at hand only. But everything was large and system, systemic and broad. And I, I used the example in this house, but I used to come home um, Friday nights during the summer and Ravaron would speak an hour and a half for the shear between Kabbalah, Shabbos, and Marev. And we'd make Kiddush at 10.30 at night because the yeshiva daven bizman. And my wife would be waiting and she'd say, what Rav Lichtenstein speak about tonight that you're home at 10.30? And I'd say, he said that Moshe Rabbeinu was a good person. <laughs> And my wife looked at me and said, it took him an hour and a half to say that, but he would define good and what are the applications of good? What are the manifestations? What are the roots? Good to God, good to man. What are the dangers of excessive good? What are they? I mean, it was very, and I think it's very reflective of the way we lead our lives. Our lives appear as segmented experiences, relationships, encounters, ideas, but we all know that we don't live life one dimensionally. When we interact with someone, it's based on a lot of different parts of our personality and it's feeding and influencing whom we are on many different fronts. So our experiences, even though they feel cellular and they feel limited, they're very much a product of many, many forces, ideas, emotions. And Ravara was able to help us see that every experience or every idea was larger than just that idea, I think will be pretty apparent tonight. The final issue, which to me is probably one of the more fascinating parts of my view of Elochensin as a Talmud, is he was such an Ebed Hashem, and he displayed Ebed Hashem so clearly to us, and in his Shmon Esrei, and in his Davening, and in his Shmiras HaMitzvahs, and the, the legendary story that he was asked a few years before he was Nifter, what he once written on his Kever, and you could fill ten graves with accolades about this man, and he said he just wants two words, Oved Hashem. And not even Eved Hashem, because that sounds like you've arrived and achieved it. He's in the process of becoming an Oved Hashem. But then there's, there's a humanism to Rav Lachasin, and a human voice and a recognition. Very often, we, we imagine the Ovde Hashem as people that break the humanity or dispossess or divest their humanity. And how do these two interact? The human voice, the belief in human, the optimism about the human condition, the belief in human potential. It was a staggering, staggering combination. I, I've, never, I've, I've never seen anything like it. The, the ability to be tzibrachen, they talked about it different in, in the early twos. He gave a sicha about Amuna, which he talked about shivron lei. You can look it up in the VBM. I won't get a chance to get to it tonight, given the limited time. How can it be a tzibrachen a mensch in front of a Kodesh Baruch and be broken like an Evan of Rabbo, all the while 
affirming talent, capacity, human potential. So I hope that those three issues will be illustrated in my short summary of Rav Lichtenstein's article called Bitachon in this book, By His Faith. Okay, number one, the emotional landscape of religion. Number two, how it was very panoramic. He wasn't discussing a particular issue. He was broadening the fabric and discussing the, uh, the sweep of, of human experience, of human nature, of, of religious in, encounter with HaKadosh Baruch. And then finally, how does an Ever Hashem also admit the human voice? Okay, this speech obviously was given in the wake of tragedy. This is obviously given in the wake of the Yom Kippur War, which was tragic, which was traumatic, which dealt a lethal blow to many people's faith, or at least a very, very harsh blow to people's faith. And they were looking for answers about how to recover and to define bitachon. So you would think that Rav Lichtenstein would launch right into the question, how do human beings maintain faith in the wake of tragedy, in the wake of suffering, in the wake of misery? And I think it's a question that resonates, should resonate very deeply during our period in which we're living through a world of suffering and a world in which the presence of a Kaddish Baruch Hu is obscured to many people. So you'd think that he would laser in on that question. And he, he took a few steps back. He said, Let, let's try to describe what Bitachon is first. And I think he didn't articulate this, but it's latent in his article. What's the balance within the experience of Bitachon between reliance and dependence and human role, human participation. So he began to gauge this question. He's really, I mean, to me, this is really the summary of the article. Does bitachon mean you eliminate the, he didn't summarize it in my summary, you eliminate the human voice, or bitachon is, is a human experience encountering a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And it should become clear later as well. So he started by analyzing the question of how we respond to medical illness, medical conditions, and if you take a look at source number one, and I'll try to share a screen. Oh, I can share the screen. Yola, if anyone can help me share the screen. If not, then um, if anyone can enable sh- screen Bro, sharing. Yola, can you, get the, can you, you share the screen? screen? Yola, I'm disconnected. We can't hear you, Rabbi Tari. Will I be able to share the screen? Rabbi Yonatan Shai, can you put the screen, the, the screen up? Or have no. Rabbi Tari do it? If you can, if you can, I thought I'll, 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 I'll continue share. You should be allowed to, um, you should be allowed to now. Chat if you're able to allow me to screen share. If not, I'll, I'll just continue the share. I just I did, you should be, be allowed to. Okay, on source number one on your source sheet, there's a fascinating debate between Rav Acha and Abaye, what tefillah a person should say after receiving medical treatment. In the Gemara's context, in Brachos, Dafsamach, the medical treatment is bloodletting. So a person has just visited a doctor, what should his exit prayer be? So Rav Acha's prayer is very, Yonatan, um, if you allow me to share the screen, I'd be, it'd be better. I'd, I'd like to highlight certain parts. If not, not. So just uh, if you can enable screen sharing, let me know. And if not, I'll continue as if I can. So Rav Acha's tefillah is very, okay, let me see if I can share the screen now. Right, very good. Thank you. Thank you, Yonatan. So Rav Acha's tefillah is very apologetic. I should be healed. And here's the apology. You what? You, re- you ready? It's not appropriate for us to be seeking human intervention. We should be davening to you, Akadish Baruch Hu. You are the Rafechol Basar Matvilasos, but what can we do? So Ravachas Tfila reflects a certain stance in which human beings shouldn't be involved in medical recovery. Abaye disagrees. Amr Abaye, lo lemish inishachi. That's not appropriate. Very, very powerful statement. The Tanya quotes the Pasuk, Virapo Yirape, Nikan Shanitnarashus Lerofe Lerapa. So here you see that. Sorry about the colors, let me just play on the colors. So here you see that according to Abaye, you shouldn't be apologetic. It seems to me that seeking human intervention in a medical crisis is ideal. That's something you should apologize about. You shouldn't seek human intervention. Abaye says no. Virapo Yirape. So it seems as if the Amoraim and the Gemara and Brachos already debated this question as to what role a human being should play within the bitachon effect when facing medical illness. Again, very relevant for our day. It seems as if this machlokus between Rabbi Acha, who is apologetic, implying that the response to medical illness 
should be purely based on bitachon without a human element. And if you do seek human input, it should be apologetically. And Abaye, who felt that you don't have to apologize, is also machlokas between Rashi and the Rambam. The Gemara says in Psachim, it lists or enumerates three decisions of Chizkiah which were lauded by Chazal. One of the decisions was Ganaz, Sefer, Refuos, Vehodulo. Chizkiah evidently banished a book of medical remedies. And because he banished this book, he was applauded by Chazal. Rashi says, why? People would fall ill, and instead of that illness prompting humility, self-reflection, penitence, prayer, they had a book. They had Merck's manual, they had WebMD. They just look up the remedy, and within minutes they were healed, rather than the catharsis of a religious rehabilitative experience. So Chizkia took the decision to banish, to burn this book, so that people were left looking to God rather than looking, in, uh, rather than looking to human intervention. Fascinating. Okay. Um, Rabbi Yonatan, just make sure that I'm the only one that can annotate. I'm getting a little nervous because I've been Zoom-bombed in the past. Okay. The Rambam is ballistic. The Rambam cannot accept Rashi's position. Again, Rashi's position implies that the ideal world has us davening, performing tshuva, rather than seeking human medical input. The Rambam, as I said before, livid. He calls it milvad afsus davarzeh. This is empty, it's vapid, it's meaningless. It's hazayos, which is false, and our, in our language is delusional, in Ram's language is false. Hine yichasa liachizka, lechizkia, sichlos she'en liaches dugmasa. They're imputing stupidity and idiocy to Chizkiah. That's what Chizkiah does. He's got this miracle book that can heal illness, and he burns it, and he's being complimented for it. That's true. According to this position, if a person's hungry and eats bread, do you feel that by eating bread, you're lacking in bitachon? You should burn the bread and have bitachon in Hashem? Obviously, there's a big difference. But the same debate, which involved between Abaye and Ravacha, about what prayer to say upon exiting a doctor, in their case, a blood letter, that same debate appears to be at the core of Rashi, and the Rambam. Again, Chizkiah takes the decision to banish a book of remedies. Rashi feels that the Chachamim lauded him because by banishing this book, people had to perform tshuva, penitence. The Rambam is livid, rejects this, the Rambam being a doctor, of course, and he offers some other interpretation for why Chizkiah was applauded. Of course, the very famous position of the Ramban sides more with Rashi. The Ramban has some harsh words, some very, very um, passionate words about doctors and their role. The Ramban says, this is again source number seven, when Jews are living the ideal life, nationally, lo yitnaheg in yanam v'teva klal. We're supernatural. We're not living based on the rules of nature. Because of that, we're not meant to seek medical intervention at human level. Ki ani Hashem rofecha. The Pasuk in B'Shalach, Kodesh Baruch says, I am your healer. This was actually the practice of righteous people during the period of Nevoah. Instead of seeking doctors, they lived a supernatural style, supernatural level, and they performed penitence. Avol Hadoresh, here's the money shot. Avol Hadoresh B'Shem Hanavi. A person who has access to Nevoah, lo yidrosh berofim shouldn't seek doctors. Here's the key line, Uma chelek lerofim, rhetorical question, beveis ose Hashem, beveis ose ritzon Hashem. What possible role could there be for doctors in the home of a pious, God-fearing person? Namely, in the ideal world, in the ideal sense, of course, even the Rambam would agree that in the modern context, we have to seek medical intervention, we have to seek a human response to illness, but in the ideal world, we're not meant to introduce a human element into our response to a medical crisis. We're meant to have faith that we may not have the right to live that style because we're not operating at that level. But in an ideal sense, the tachon eliminates the human element. So Rav Lichtenstein used 
responding to medical illness as a prism to help develop these two ideas. Now, Rev. Lichtenstein felt that although in general religion there are different strands, as a general rule of thumb, Judaism adopts more of an activist stand rather than a pacifist stand. And I'll read you a quote. I just want to let Rev. Lichtenstein speak a little tonight. He quotes Luther, the uh, 15th, 16th century German priest, German philosopher. In Luther's formulation, any human attempt to achieve spiritual or ethical perfection, any human input, is a grave error, for it bespeaks arrogance. Man, in his view, is a despicable creature who cannot achieve redemption except through divine intervention. Rather, a person can only wait passively for grace, just as a woman waits for conception. So there is a very prominent pacifist view that human beings have no role. All we can do is wait for Hashem, not just in medical illness, but even in spiritual growth. We're just waiting passively for Hashem to impregnate us with spiritual awareness, spiritual awakening, redemption. Rav felt that halacha, in glaring contrast, is founded on the touchstone of free will, the human element, the chirachavshis, on the principle that human effort constitutes the essential component of spirituality that a human being has a central role to play in regulating the events of his or her personal life, as well as in affecting the direction of history in general. If there is a human role, and we do celebrate Bechir HaChavshis, then we have to tilt more towards the activist stance, and that stance is consistent with Bitachon. Bitachon doesn't mean eliminating the human voice, it means creating some balance between the two. So although there was Rashi's position, and there was Ravacha's position, and the Ramban's position, at least maybe about medicine, maybe medical illness is a particular condition in life that should be responded to purely supernaturally based on the Pasuk of Meshalach, as a general rule, Rav Aaron felt that Judaism tilts more towards a balance. Bitachon doesn't eliminate the human voice in the day-to-day. So when I speak about Rav Luchensin's panorama, he didn't immediately respond to the definition of Bitachon in 1975. He said, first, let's take a step back and survey Bitachon on a day-to-day basis. What role should human beings play? And is that role consistent with Bitachon? And Rashi and Ravacha, and maybe the Rambam would say that at least for medical conditions, Bitachon means elimination of a human role. The Rambam would disagree, and Ravaran felt that represented a more consistent approach in line with our Bechir Chachis. Then Rav Lichtenstein discovered or explored another area, not just in day-to-day decision of what level of human effort should be invested, but what about human decisions about policies and just decisions? Medical illnesses isn't a decision. I'm facing a condition. The condition has landed upon me. Now I have a choice to make in response. What about proactive decisions? What about the policies we set, the way we lead our lives? So Lichstein actually, instead of choosing medical illness as a prism for this question, chose a different prism, which is very relevant and very compelling in 1975. And it was the prism of land for peace. Is it true that the more bitachon you have, the less practical you are in your politics? Is it true that if you're more from and you have more bitachon, then your position is, well, I should I get involved in diplomacy or politics or pragmatic or practical solutions? After all, trust in Kaddish Baruch Hu to deliver Eretz Yisrael to us in a silver platter even though practically it seems dangerous and risky, at least in those days. Obviously today, uh, these conversations feel a little bit worn, but at least in those days, in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, these are very active conversations. So, we're looking quoted two sources, and I'll try to highlight the sources for you, that it's not so true that Bitachon allows or even invites an over-reliance upon a Kodesh Baruch Hu without practical concerns. So Belazar says in the Gemara Msachim, source number nine, if you're on the path, if you're involved in a mitzvah, you're invulnerable, you're immune, you're protected. And then the Gemara responds, but not if you're taking a decision that's excessively perilous. So even though you've got that shulche mitzvah immunity, doesn't give you the right, just assume that it won't happen. Or as the Gemara says in Shabbos, this isn't about what will happen, but proactively should you even make the choice. Let's say even you would know that you'd have that immunity, you'd have that invincibility. Do you have the right to gamble? Do you have the right to prompt Hashem, Baruch will save me, 
So therefore, let me take decisions which would seem to be irresponsible. Let me, again, take it as an extreme level. Let me blow up the Temple Mount, knowing that hundreds of millions of Arabs would invade because I can bank on our Kodesh Baruch Hu protecting and thereby accelerating the Gula. So this isn't about day-to-day decisions, how to respond to medical crisis. This is more about human accommodating political concerns, practical concerns, operating within the sphere of Derech Eretz, or allowing your bitachon to justify a severing uh, from political or practical considerations. And, and in this typical manner of Lechnesing reminded us, it's not more from to be more vigilant. Sometimes in our world, we almost reflexively see people that are more vigilant, more zealous, more intense, more passionate, more judgmental, they're more from. And Ravar taught us all that balance is part of Frumkite, and especially balancing between the role of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and reliance upon that role and the role of human beings that Hashem wants is, is part of Frumkite. So let me just read some of this article to you. Let us not fall prey, he writes, to overzealousness in the realm of Bitachon. We would be erring grievously to believe that an approach that seemingly champions excessive trust in divine intervention is imbued with a greater amount of Yerashamayim than a view which adopts a more rational and pragmatic methodology. It is possible for one to be intransigent, spouting slogans of faith, yet motivated in truth by irresponsibility. It is also possible to be pliant and yielding, yet possessed of an abiding trust accompanied by great caution. So the second prism he chose was not response to medical condition, but uh, an orientation, not a response to a particular moment, but an orientation towards life. Should it be someone that's practical and calculating of all the human factors and diplomatically sensitive in the national sphere? Well, they have right to have trust in the Kaddish Baruch Hu and, be, uh, and behave in ways that may seem reckless, that may seem irresponsible. And Ravon said that Bitachon still has a human voice. He didn't say these words. I'm trying to paint a picture of the tone of the article. And admitting that human voice, whether in the realm of Bechira Chavshis, or whether in the realm of consulting a doctor, as the Rambam said, or as Abayu said, or whether in the realm of allowing human considerations to affect policy, that isn't a deficiency of Bitachon, and it certainly doesn't render someone less religious. So this is the intro. When I say panoramic, this is really when the shear begins. This is really when Rav Luchanzin is about to, re- to relate to the third section, not the day-to-day balance between bitachon and human role, and not the orientation in our lives, but how do you define bitachon in the face of tragedy, in the face of uncertainty, in 1975, in, in great trauma. Now the shear is about to begin, but all of a sudden we, we've thought about the human role, the human voice, it's not inconsistent with Bitachon. There are different approaches. He showed us the Rambam and Rashi. So all of a sudden there's context, there's a framework to it. I think there's a direction to it. We're looking for a type of Bitachon in the face of tragedy, which doesn't dispossess or stifle the human voice or the human ability, but maintains it while still being an Ovan Hashem. And that's, I think, the brilliance of this article. Okay, so just take a second to breathe. I'll take a second to breathe and take a drink. This is the introduction. And again, we haven't even discussed the issue at hand, of course, how do we maintain our faith when facing crisis or struggle? Okay. The classic approach to bitachon in the face of crisis, or at least the classic approach in the Torah world, is voiced by the Rabbeinu Bechaye. Rabbeinu Bechaye, um, there were two Rabbeinu Bechaye's Ibn Bukuda. This was uh, the one who wrote the Chobos al-Babas, not, not the one who wrote the Karakemach. So in source 11, he writes as follows. Let, I'll let him do the talking, then I'll explain it, but it's, it's something familiar to all of us. He says, Mahus habitachon, humenuchas hanefesh, serenity, haboteach of the believer, v'shiehe libo samoch hamishabatach, I love you, trust Hashem, sheyase hatov v'anachalo b'inyin. You trust HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Now whatever happens, it will be positive. It will be favorable. In our jargon, gamzu letova. Hakol letov. Even though we sense tragedy, calamity, uncertainty, dark, Hashem has larger cheshbonos, and he must have some plan that I can't tap into. I'll just assume that the resolution will be positive, that the resolution will be favorable. Again, menuchas nefesh aboteach, 
trying to outscreen the helicopters outside of my house. I mean, they're an army base. Menuchas hanefesh haboteach, the serenity, that trust, that absolute trust in Hashem provides. Shelibo samoch hamishabakachalav, you trust the Rabbonu Shalom, that he'll provide a benefit for you, a favorable outcome. Now, Rav rejected this. Interestingly enough, Rav had an ally in rejecting this. And I'll just read it because I think it's fascinating to read it, as well as fascinating to meet this Sefer and to read this language. It's the Chazonish. The Chazonish, in his Sefer of Amun Bitachon, roundly rejects this notion. Taos noshenes, it's a very poetic line there. Chazanish wrote very poetically. There's a terrible and grievous error that's become embedded, nit it become like an azrach, like a citizen, believe rabbin. Many people think incorrectly about bitachon. And they think that the anytime you're at a crossroads and you don't know what's going to happen or you're facing tragedy, Hashem will provide a favorable outcome. And if you have doubts about that, then you Then you don't have bitachon. So this is not the correct way to define bitachon. I'm not going to describe right now how the Chazanish defines bitachon. It's more theological, friend. Again, just for the sake of clarifying terminology, emuna is theological. Bitachon is applicational. Emuna is I subscribe to basic precepts. No. HaKadosh Baruch created the world. Hashem exhibit, exerts providence. Hashem isn't physical. Essentially, the trail of the 13 Midos of the Rambam. That's emuna. Bitachon is, well, now that I face a medical crisis, how much of a human voice should there be? How much of human effort? Now that I have to decide about a political uh, policy, how much of practical concerns? Now that I'm facing a particular trauma or tragedy, how do I reconcile it? So emuna is theological. It's precepts of faith that, about Hashem's presence in our universe. Bitachon is applicational. How should I apply myself to this predicament, to that situation, to this decision, to that condition? So more or less, the chazonish reverts back to emuna. You don't have to believe that this outcome will be favorable. You don't know whether it will be favorable or not. You just hold steadfast to your theological positions that there's no randomness, there's no caprice in the world, and everything is providential. Uh, right now, I, I don't want to discuss the, the Chazanish too extensively. Rav Lichtenstein rejected the Chovah Salva. He rejected it. was in rejection. He doesn't think that's the only approach to Bitachon. He doesn't say this, but again, my sense is, is because essentially, in the, in, in the Rabbeinu Machayah's world, there is no human voice. You see this as a tragedy. You have no way to compute this in a favorable sense. This seems traumatic. This seems suffering. It seems like there's no solution to this. And to simply suppress human processing and human computation, just as Hashem has other trajectories and other computations, may be true, but you're basically eliminating the human voice. And when you're eliminating the human voice, even though you're making that decision as a human being, but you're making a decision to eliminate your voice, then it becomes inconsistent with everything else. Because we believe that with bitachon in general, you see a doctor, right? We subscribe to the Rambams. We believe that bitachon admits a human element. We take political and practical considerations in our public policies, in our political policies, in our personal orientation. So we do admit that bitachon incorporates a human voice. Then all of a sudden, when you face the tragedy, let's shut down the human voice. It's... It's feasible because you could say that a tragedy is a rupture in the continuity of human experience. We have to draw certain tools and certain voices that are reflective of our day-to-day voice. But I think people that are searching for integration of self, that voice has to be consistent. So if we're living with a world of bitachon in which there is an element of human decision, human input, human intervention, human policy, human concerns, so shouldn't that also, shouldn't there be a human voice when you're facing the unknown or you're facing what seems to be tragic. So at this point, Rav Lichtenstein converted, and what I'm using, converted faith into a passion. We think about faith and bitachon as something theoretical and amunos videos and philosophical, and essentially it becomes part of that emotional bond to our Baruch Again, I want to let Rav Lichtenstein's speech do the talking, or at least the edited speech do the talking, but I'll, I'll just give a one or two word introduction, then I'll end. It's not about believing what the outcome would be. It's about asserting that you're loyal and committed to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, regardless of the outcome.
the outcome isn't as important to you as the relationship. It's a tremendous shift. I'm not thinking about what will happen to me as much as realizing the worst fate is to be severed from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And I'm clinging to Hashem for dear life, and that's my bitachon. Bitachon isn't about questioning what the solution or the resolution will be as much as bonding to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Let me just read a little bit from Rav Lichtenstein and then I'll comment on it. Um, obviously, this approach has a completely different meaning. It does not, it's such a beautiful language. It does not attempt, obviously it's translation, he gave this, the lecture in Hebrew. It does not attempt to scatter the clouds of misfortune, try to raise expectation, or strive to whitewash a dark future. It does not claim it will all work out for the best, either individually or nationally. On the contrary, it expresses a steadfast commitment. Even if the outcome will be bad, we will remain reliant on and connected to God. We will remain faithful until the end and shall not exchange our trust in God for dependence on man. Here's a very powerful turn of phrase. This approach does not claim that God will remain at our side. Rather, it asks us to remain at his side. I found that sentence very powerful. It does not claim that God will remain at our side. It asks us to remain at his side. In truth, this approach presents not just a demand, but also a message. Being disconnected from God constitutes the greatest tragedy that can befall a person. When the Torah says you should cleave to Hashem, it simultaneously expresses a demand as well as an opportunity. Naturally, this approach is much less popular than its counterpart, the Vena Bechaye. A demand, demanding that you adhere to Hashem, is always less marketable than a promise that everything will be optimistically favorable. For one who makes an honest assessment, though, this approach also functions as a source of solace and strength. Being disconnected from God constitutes the greatest tragedy that can befall a person. To me, this is the core of this year. Faith now becomes a human initiative. It becomes a human decision, not a divestiture of human thought. Well, I don't understand what will happen, and I just have to suspend my... Of course we suspend and believe Hashem has other computations. It, it's almost as if it's a split between philosophy and existentialism. Okay, so just to highlight the difference, when, when the Rabbim tries to solve theodicy and the problem of evil in the world, how does he solve it? The Rabbim says, well, Hashem doesn't, one of his solutions in Lord of Ruchim, Hashem doesn't create evil. He's fundamentally incapable of creating evil because he's benevolent and he's omnipotent. Hashem just creates good, but he doesn't distribute good equitably. So a blind person wasn't created blind, he just wasn't given the gift of sight. Ill person wasn't created ill, he just wasn't given the gift of health. A hungry person wasn't created hungry because Hashem can't create hunger, he can't create blindness, and he can't create illness by definition. So that's how the Rambam solves the problem of evil. Now, that's true philosophically. If you're trying to justify God's ways, what about if you're trying to live with it? Existentially, go over to a poor person and try to console the poor person. Don't worry, you're not poor, you just don't have money. Don't worry, you're not blind, you just don't have sight. Don't worry, you're not hungry there's a gap between philosophy trying to make Hashem's equations make sense and existentialism, living in a world of suffering, living in a world of tragedy, living in a world of uncertainty. So the Rebbeinu B'chaye is true. Obviously Hashem has computations, but can that be the sole existential platform? Can a person live life that way? Or to ask a more provocative question, should a person live life that way? Is it consistent with the human voice? And Ravaran's human voice is very powerful. I don't know about that outcome. Let's put that on the side. Let's shelve it. Yeah. But right now I'm suffering. But I make a decision that I just want to be with you. I want to be in Evid Hashem. I want to be in your presence. And that's more important to me than whatever thoughts about the outcome may haunt me. I think it's a very powerful idea. Um, I'm going to read a paragraph that I, I, every time I, I read it, I break down crying. So we're about to get to that paragraph in a moment. Rav Aaron saw Eof as the paradigm of this approach. And ironically, a Pasuk that Rav Amital also quoted as the new platform for Emuna in a post-Holocaust world. So the Gemara has a debate whether Eof, and there's a lot of, obviously, ambiv- ambiguity to Eof. The debate was Eof and Vashem, or he was just broken by the sheer power and force of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, or did he actually... Cling to Akadosh Baruch the way they were describing, 
The Gemara's primary, almost predominant approach is that he was an Oiv Hashem. Bo bayom darash rabbi Yeshua ben Horkinus lo avad Iavas hakadosh baruch hu ela meyahava. That Iav was a true Oiv Hashem. What's the pasuk? Hein yiktaleni lo ayachel. A four-word, very powerful statement. Though you may murder me, again, we read it, Lamed Vav. It's, it, it's a bit of a double entendre because it's written Lamed Aleph, so it could be read, I will not wait for you, I'll abandon you if you torture me. And that's what led certain people to believe that Eov was not an Ohev Hashem, but maybe Yeshua ben Hortinus interpreted as, Hein Yikdeleni, as we read it, Lo Ayachel, I will wait for you. So no matter, if Amital, and again, you, you can... Uh, I keep referencing the Holocaust, the share I gave on Ravami Tal and the Holocaust. Maybe I can ask Rav Yonatan to put it up on the chat. It's certainly something that's worthwhile listening to. You have a little bit of time. Ravami Tal felt this was a pusik for the modern post Holocaust platform of faith. Nalamed, Rav Shua ben Karcha says, Shem ahava asa, that Eov was an Oiv Hashem. And this seems to be the approach of the Gemara in um, Sota, Tanya of Meiromer. Nemar, Yirelukim Be'iov, and Nemar Yirelukim Be'avram, they both are called Yirei Shemayim, but just like Avram was also an Oyev Hashem, similarly, Eov was an Oyev Hashem. So Eov becomes the, the paradigm, because it's, it, it's arguable whether his resolution was favorable. The resolution doesn't seem to be so favorable. So the question is more about the process, but less about the result. More about clinging to HaKadosh Baruch assuming you see Eov through this light. Now, Rav Aaron, inserted these two types of emuna, the Rabbeinu Machaya form of emuna, and his form of bitachon, not emuna, but bitachon. First of all, he, he created terminology for them. Rav Aaron was very adept at terminology. Called one a faithful trust and a loving trust. Faithful trust would be the Rabbeinu Bahaya's approach. That you're faithful and that the resolution will be optimistic and will be cheery. The loving trust is, I'm not obsessed with tomorrow. I'm just obsessed with the relationship and trying to maintain that relationship even under the weight of the suffering, even under the weight, the withering weight of the, of the, of the persecution, of the difficulty. Ravaran felt that there were two prakim in Tehillim, which in his mind, and he was so adept at contrasting prakim and Tanakh. He didn't deliver shiurim on Tanakh in the classic way that the Herzog shiurim, where you're looking at these large tracts of text and trying to isolate the key word and comparing, but in a very, very astute textual eye, he would read an extra vav or two words. There was a lot of contrasting. Two words in the same section, two different sections. So he really, he really endowed us with a careful textual eye, but it was very different from the Herzog massive or meta-analysis or meta-textual analysis. So he compared emuna or bitachon, more appropriately, more precisely, in Tehillim Parakuf Chafalev as opposed to Tehillim Parakuf Lamedalev. Kuf Chafalev he felt, reflected Rabbeinu Bahai's faithful trust. Shir Lamalos. Esai we all know it, Yavo Ezri. Ezri This is a parak which oozes with expectation. Where will my salvation come from? It will come from Hashem. Expectation and confidence. The unknown, Me'ayin Yavo Ezri, is rapidly resolved into the optimism. And the rest of the parak is pretty optimistic. It's very confident. Hashem doesn't rest. Hashem doesn't sleep. Okay, I think we have someone annotating. So just be careful, Rabbi Yonasan, not to annotate. I think I'm going to shut down the share because we have someone who's uh, playing with this screen. So we'll just use their own, uh, their own source sheet. So Ezrinim Hashem, Osei Shamayim Varetz. Confidence, optimism, expectation. What will the resolution be? Whereas source seventeen, Shir Hamalos LeDavid, Hashem Logavali Bi, I haven't been haughty, I haven't been excessively ambitious. many, haven't overshot myself and overshot my ego. My soul, and when I'm quiet, my soul is like a suckling near his mother. What is this image of a child and a mother? So I'm going to read two paragraphs, A, that make me very emotional, B, that make me very jealous. What do I mean jealous? Um, I'm sure there are some women listening to this year. 
So this is a description which I will never understand as well as a woman will. I've watched my wife. I've watched my daughters with their children. I try to climb into the mindset of a nursing mother. But obviously, as much as I try to understand what that means, I'll never understand it. And it's amazing to me to hear Rav Lechem describe it and the, just be prepared for an astoundingly, emotionally astute description of an experience he never had, but he observed. So for all those people who thought that Rav Lechem was purely theoretical, listen to this description. What does the suckling infant think while in his mother's embrace? Does he regard her as the one who will save him from crisis? Perhaps instinctually, but practical expectations are not the main thing on the infant's mind. The infant in the mother's embrace is thinking about the pending crisis, the pending shortage of milk, the pending visit to the doctor. The mother's baby has no consciousness. First of all, the baby turns to the mother because he wants to be close to her. At that moment, he's not preoccupied with future plans, nor is he anticipating the fulfillment of visions or promises. He knows only one thing. The world is cold, a frightening place, but here with his mother, there is warmth and security. The mother, in turn, caresses him and comforts him. Over and above any response on her part, simply being in her presence gives him life and strength. Therefore, the suckling cleaves to her under all circumstances. This is not out of readiness to sacrifice himself for her, but rather because nothing in the world can separate him from her. Wherever she turns, he is at her side, tightly clutching her skirt with his small fingers. I love that image, tightly clutching her skirt with his small fingers. And this Rav Lechensin drew from the Parakintil, that our relation with HaKadosh Baruch was compared to an infant because an infant has no instincts or, or awareness of future crisis or pending decisions or future unknown. It's just, I want to be with my mother. I want that warmth, that security. And the infant, the worst fate that can befall the infant is to be stripped from his mother's warm embrace. And Ravaran felt, of course, he wasn't trying to adopt one form of faith as opposed to the other, but of course, create a, a blend and a symbiosis. And this brought Rav Lichtenstein to his educational message. And very often, and many of us, I'm sure, listening to this year, we accompanied Rav Lichtenstein to conferences, educator conferences, rabbinic conferences. So it's almost as if there were three parts to every lecture, sometimes four parts. There was the panoramic introduction part, which he wasn't discussing faith after the Yom Kippur War, but just faith, bitachon, human role. There was the main event, defining bitachon. Then there was translating it into educational imperatives and educational guidance. Very often there was a fourth section, namely section number one, panoramic introduction, section number two, the main event, section number three, assessing the Haredi world, giving them kudos, and then really criticizing the Datilami world, the modern Orthodox. It was very, very balanced, and he, his interest wasn't bashing other worlds, but trying to correct our world. As a general summary, Rev. Lichtenstein's comments in 1975 to the Datilumi attendees or educators who were in attendance was that the budding Rev. Cook-driven world of religious Zionism, at least in 1975, was intoxicated with faithful trust and expectations and optimism and was suffering a deficiency in loving trust. And I will adhere to Hashem no matter what. And I'll read some of his comments, but let me first summarize. Very giddy. 48, 67, territory, return to our land. Rev. Cook is brimming with optimism. But where this is all landing, about the impending conversion of all secular Jews to religion, it's all just very cosmologically neatly packaged. It's all going to happen very, very quickly. Living in a world of comfort, living in a world of, of accommodation. So we've become trained almost to translate our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu into expectation, accommodation, and then using the terms I introduced at the beginning of this year, what will Hashem do for me? How, how will my Amorna serve me? Because ultimately, as ironic as it sounds, even though Rabbeinu Bahaye, and that approach limits the human voice, but it still serves human needs. In the end, we demand that Hashem remain by our side. We just assure ourselves that he's by our side, even though we can't detect it. But ultimately, it's, it's expecting HaKadosh Baruch Hu 
demanding of a Kodesh Baruch rather than demanding of yourself. There's an irony here. And Rav Lachazim is a human voice, a human decision to cling to Hashem, but we're serving Hashem. We're, we're tracing the Rabbonu Shalom rather than demanding that. So Rav Aaron felt that in the religious Zionist world, there was a disproportion of faithful trust and not enough loving trust. A disproportion of expecting outcomes in a favorable sense, expecting Hashem to provide those outcomes, banking on Hashem to provide those outcomes, rather than saying, I don't know what those outcomes are, and Hashem has no responsibility to any of us. But I'll cling to HaKadosh Baruch because that's the core of, of religious experience. So, here's some of his comments. I think that our own period, which has witnessed the rebirth of the state of Israel, is a time in which there's an imbalance. All of the religious and national hopes and aspirations that arose with the dawn of the state tended to draw us completely towards faithful trust, while the second approach of loving trust was pushed aside. Perhaps this is due to the fact that under favorable conditions in general, it's more difficult to demand religious self-sacrifice. We live in a much more comfortable world. See, quoted the Catholic historian, that it's much easier to dismiss the world and adopt an otherworldly stance when there's not much to lose in this life. In contrast, we have many possessions, so we can't easily disdain the material realm. Number two, Ravara iterates. It's also possible that our almost exclusive embrace of the first aspect is engendered by our continuous accomplishments. We have so many accomplishments. Accomplishments breed expectations. Breed accomplishments breed expectations. Finally, perhaps the popularity of the teachings of Rav Kook, suffused as they are with national and cosmic optimism, is also partially responsible. Here, Rav Lechensin instructs, whatever the cause, the phenomenon is clear. The equilibrium between the two aspects of trust has been lost by the religious Zionist community in Israel. Here are some very, very cutting words. We inculcated the ideas of faithful trust, redemption, hope, expectation very well, but neglected to teach the values of loving trust, of cleaving to God without hesitation under all circumstances. I think it's clinging to God. Without hesitation under all circumstances. We did not fortify our children concerning the possibility of crisis. Conveying, here's a nice poetic phrase, conveying that the song to God must be sung even on the rivers of Babylon. Even when we're not living in Israel successful, even when we're exiled and suffering, we still sing to Hashem. We did not allow ourselves to wrestle with the possibility of national setbacks. We taught ourselves about the human comedy, but never about the human tragedy. We did succeed in nurturing patriotism, paraphrasing. All this was accomplished with, while riding a wave of optimism that all would work out because the process of redemption was unfolding. The engine of this process was faithful trust and it found expression on the individual as well as the national level. Our obligation is to redirect our focus to embrace loving trust, to acknowledge that we are ready to hold tight to God because he is our steadfast rock and let the chips fall where they may. We must deal with the tragic dimension of trust to renew the spirit of course, I'm brimming with belief that Hashem will not abandon his people. The Reverend says, don't think that, I don't, that I'm all of a sudden doubting Hashem. At the same time, I feel I must simultaneously instill in them loving trust, not as a spiritual insurance policy in case of crisis, insurance policy, don't worry, of insurance policy, but rather because sacrifice and connectedness to Hashem are essential in their own right, even under the most favorable circumstances. Such a classic way to summarize connectedness and self-sacrifice to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So I think this article, this lecture, highlighted those three points. At a structural level, he didn't just discuss the Beit HaBachai in his, in his opinion, which is very broad, about the role of the human role, different approaches. Second of all, a very a clear transitioning from, you can call it philosophy to as existentialism, you can call it from theoretics to passion and emotion. Um, I'm struck now remembering Esti Rosenberg's Hespade for her father. And just that line, she painted the scene where he was being taken away in an ambulance during one of his medical crises towards the end of his life. And evidently he was under medication or and he was just shouting at the top of his lungs again and again in the ambulance, Biyadcha Afkid Ruchi, Padiso Si Hashem, Biyadcha Afkid Ruchi, I give you my soul, Biyadcha Afkid Ruchi, Padiso Hashem, Zem Kelemis, again and again. This dependence upon Hashem, this Ever Hashem that we saw so clearly in him, but miraculously, an Ever Hashem through, um, 
to maintaining the human voice and the human decision, not, not s- suppressing or abdicating human computation, but saying, I'm making a decision as a human being to hone in on the relationship and not hone in on the outcome. We make that decision every day in our relationships. We make decisions about what to hone in on, what to, what, what, what to highlight as the core of our relationship. And, and finally, the, the, the critique of our community, which I guess I'll just, because we're, we're about to near the end of the lecture, I'll just add a personal component. I think I spoke about this in the Ravamitel lecture. Uh, in the disengagement from Aza, I think a lot of these issues came to the fore. Ravaron was writing in 75, and I think a lot of these remained dormant. But in the mid-twos, when we withdrew from Aza, so a lot of Rabbanin in the religious Zionist camp, I think, had this overconfidence. And that overconfidence expressed itself in a statement, which at least was interpreted by many people. I didn't hear the statement personally, so I don't want to generalize what it certainly was interpreted by large numbers of religious Zionist Jews. This disengagement will not happen. It can happen. Now, for Avamital, it was shocking that 70, 75 years after Hashem allowed the Holocaust, people could be so confident that it won't happen. And I spoke about that last week, but the Holocaust introduced a lot of intellectual humility into Ravamital's visioning of history and how he interpreted history. For Avaron, it wasn't so much the specter of the Holocaust that created that humility. It was just expectations of success as, as a substitute for commitment and Avodas Hashem and clinging to Akadosh Baruch Hu. And you can't always, uh, Racheli uh, Frankel, you know, uh, my son is very close with the family because he was very close with Naftali, Hashem Yukom Damav, had a very short way to phrase this. She was at the Kotel, one of these gatherings of Tfilos, and she was speaking to little children. And she basically said, Akadosh Baruch Hu, Huloha Ovechilcha. Hashem's not your employee. You can't dictate terms to him. You daven, you ask, you petition. It may, you may say yes, it may say no. It may, you may not understand the yes, but can't demand is humility and the nivus that an Ebed Hashem wears. And I think it really um, manifests itself in this definition of bitachon. So Amir Hashem, we should continue to learn his Torah and continue to understand them more deeply. There's just such deep pools and deep reservoirs of ideas and of human experience and of religious identity. And I hope that, um, first of all, the Shem of our Rebbe should have an aliyah, should be a melis yosher for for us is Talmidim, for all Am Yisrael, for all of humanity, in a time that we all need those, those Zechuyos and Shemayim. And Hashem should give us the ability to, Hashem should continue to open our eyes to the rich, vast world of ideas that our Rebbe exposed us to. Thank you, Rebbe. Okay. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi Targan. Thank you very much. Thank you.